we wrap up this year, I'm actually wrapping up a series for the year, a theme for the year. Our theme has been Feel the Passion. And passion, as I've said over and over again, is your key to your breakthrough. The, the, I don't care what that area of breakthrough may be in. It's your, your key. Passion is your key. And we've used the text throughout this year that I hope has been branded and seared into your hearts, not only your hearts, but also into your subconscious so that everything you do will flow out of this. The scripture in Ecclesiastes says, seize life. Amen. Seize it. Grab it. That's what you've got to do. And I've taught that over and over again. And I've taught you that if you do that, you will not have to spend the rest of your life living in mediocrity and mundaneness, ordinariness, lackadaisical existence, that you can move into that extraordinary dimension where life was meant to be lived, and that is especially true as a child of God. Because even those who are in the world that have passion, until they get the God factor going for them, they're going to peek out somewhere along the way. But Hebrews 4, I've been teaching you, says that we have a high priest that we can appeal to. And when our passion is involved in this and we move God with our passion and he gets involved in our lives, hey, it just gets kicked up to another level of success on steroids. Amen. I mean, you go way beyond where the average person could go in terms of fulfillment of life who doesn't know God. And the reason I've been teaching this is I think it should be apparent to every person. You live in today's world where we're becoming very highly secularized. The church is purposely, intentionally being marginalized. And people are saying God isn't vital and necessary anymore to the lives of individuals. And, and uh, they're living their lives. I mean, even Christians are are living their lives, and, and God is no longer number one. He's moved down to number two or three, you know, after making money and sports and recreation and everything else. I'm, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. And it uh, kind of reminds me of the baptismal service where little Johnny, after being baptized, sobbed all the way home. He had been touched by God as just a child, and uh, his family, had, he wanted to be baptized. His father let him be baptized, and three times on the way home, as little Johnny sobbed and cried, he, his father asked him, son, what's wrong? And finally, the little boy replied, the pastor said he wanted us children to be brought up in a Christian home. Now I want to stay with you guys. <laughs> and let's make it real now. Make it real. I want to talk to you today about somebody that moved God. I mean, they got the high priest involved in their lives. Luke 18, 35 through 39. Then it happened. What a word. Then it happened. Just turn to somebody and say, there's coming a day in my life when I'm going to be able to say, then it happened. Mm. Then it happened as he was coming near Jericho, speaking of Christ, <clears throat> that a certain blind man <clears throat> sat.
sat by the road begging. And hearing a multitude passing by, he asked what it meant. So they told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. And he cried out saying, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. Then those who went before warned him that he should be quiet. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. My subject today is how to go beyond sight to vision. Father, would you speak to us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Position us. The teaching of your word is an incredible force for good in our lives. If we can only but hunger for you and hunger for the things that you brought us into this world to achieve and accomplish and not be content with mediocrity, we will understand the value of the contribution you have to make in us, the importance of it. Help us to see that today in Jesus' name. I want to speak to you today about pursuing vision and not just sight. Our story is about a man who was blind but who had vision. He didn't have sight. He had vision. Bartimaeus moved Jesus to act on his behalf, and only a casual reading of this story will reveal to you that he had extraordinary determination, extraordinary determination. If you know very much about the psychology of a crowd, there's a phenomenon that is called the group mind. Have you ever heard of that? Group mind. In essence, what the group mind is, is the prevailing thought that even at a, a, a level that is not verbally articulated, that may be subconscious or subliminal, is being exerted in a group of people that begins to affect the members of that group, whether they realize it or not. In a room of 101 people, there are actually 101 minds. That works for you. It can work against you. Whatever the predominant thought and emotion of a group may be automatically begins to affect you if you join this group and that group mind effect is at work. For example, go to a football game and in all of the roar of that crowd, or if you really want to see fanaticism in sports, attend a soccer game somewhere in Europe or Latin America. I'm telling you, the whole crowd goes crazy. And you may walk into that stadium not intending to participate, but it affects you. Similarly, you go to a funeral home. You might not even be closely connected with the person who is deceased. You might not even really be connected at all to them directly. It may be that you're going to pay respects because of your friendship or relationship with someone who has lost that person as a relative, and you're going to support that person that is your friend. But you walk in, and not even really knowing the individual that is deceased, because of the grief that is connected with the loss of that person and the overwhelming sense of loss, especially if you're there when the body is first brought out and it's just the family that are there first and you come in right after that. 
it can be a very moving experience and you find grief welling up in you just because of this group mind effect. And that, on the other hand, works in an opposite direction. If you come into a group of people that are excited, like I said, the football game or the soccer game analogy, basketball, people are uh, ramped up, hyped up. I mean, they're excited. You can be feeling somewhat down over something that's going on in your life. And if you connect with people who are amped up, it elevates you, floats your boat, your emotions. You get charged. And this is why we as parents, for example, are really, really careful to make sure our kids don't get connected with the wrong group. Because this group effect can go to work, this group mind. And your child may have been programmed correctly, but surrounding him with the wrong or her with the wrong influences can have a detrimental effect on their life because they get swept up in that. That happens in mobs. You wonder how can people who are uh, reasonable, intelligent, sane, people who, who do things in mob activity that they later regret and look back over and say, gee, how, why did I do that? You can get caught away, swept up in the tide of emotion that is prevalent and predominant in an event, and before you realize it, you've done something that you regret. I have learned the benefit, as I said, of when I'm walking through a rough place to not do what instinctively we as human beings do. Instinctively, most of us, if we're walking through a stressful place, want to withdraw. That is particularly exacerbated by your being, if you are like this, a person who likes some seclusion once in a while anyway. I happen to be one of those. Which means that if I go through a really stressful time, my tendency is to want to withdraw. That's not always a good thing. And so I have learned to buck the tide, the trend, the inclination, and I will connect with people when I'm in a highly stressful situation just because I know that sometimes they help me float my boat. And so don't ever get upset and then stay home. Hear what I'm saying right now? Oh, I'm walking through a rough place. As soon as I get over this, I'm going to go back to church. That's a whole lot like saying, as soon as I get rid of this cancer, I'm going to check into the hospital. Amen. That's not the way life works. Amen. God didn't design it to be that way. But the story here is interesting in that Bartimaeus is in the middle of a crowd that is excited about what Jesus is doing. There have been three years of ministry that have been impacting. The first was the year of inauguration when Jesus began his ministry by turning water into wine and then all of the miracles. And, and I mean, I'm telling you, in no time at all, the news flashed around that little nation of Israel and that area of Palestine and everybody was hearing about Jesus and blind eyes being open. And this brings him to the second year of his ministry that is called the year of popularity because, I mean, he was immensely popular, hugely popular. And people who hadn't been to church in years were turning out to hear his sermons and 
they were energized and excited by his teaching and they had never heard anyone teach like him or with his authority either. And uh, then came the year of opposition, opposition because the religious status quo was affected. And they became jealous because Jesus was, was doing such a remarkable job in people's lives, teaching them the word of God. And what that did, you would think they would be happy, but instead it juxtapositioned their failure alongside his success. And they felt like it made them look like they were really doing a bad job. And so they hated it that people loved Jesus, and they began to plot to kill him <clears throat> and began to openly try to trap him and, and, you know, begin to try to draw the people into a conspiracy against Christ, and all that did was make him more popular. One of the things I've learned is you shouldn't be upset when people talk bad about you. I mean, listen to it. I mean, they're talking bad about Jesus, and all it's doing is making him more popular every time they talk about him. God will take the very words of your enemy and use them to make you get promoted in the process. And don't you be upset. Amen. This is one of the great and inspiring stories of the Bible. It's found in three of the four synoptic gospels. The only one that omits this story is the gospel of St. John. Mark and Matthew include this, though my text is from Luke. Matthew adds an additional fact. He says there weren't just there wasn't just one blind man there. He says there were two. Mark is the one that actually gives us the man's name as Bartimaeus. But Jesus is passing through Jericho on his way to Jerusalem. He's now at the end of his ministry. And Bartimaeus and another blind man begin to hear the mob approach. And they lift up their voices. And Jesus heals them. Bartimaeus is the only name that is mentioned in any of the Gospels connected with this, and uh, it's, a, it's a fascinating story. His name actually further emphasizes the hopelessness of his circumstance and situation. You see, for bar Timaeus, bar is actually a Hebrew prefix to a name, and it's like in Kenya among the Maasai, uh, you find a man named Ole Kudrado, Kujado means his father. That's his dad's name. Ole, O-L-E, is the Maasai prefix for son of. And so it's son of Kujado. You go to Sweden and Norway, you'll find somebody named Johansson. What that means is Johan or John's son. And through the years, these names have worked their way into our culture. And many of us don't really understand where these names come from. And we read the story of Bartimaeus and fail to make the connection, but his name is very similar in this regard, in that Bar simply means son of. It's the name Timaeus that is intriguing. Son of Timaeus, Bar Timaeus. Timaeus actually means blind man. It's when you read that that all of a sudden you realize just how hopeless his circumstance was. He was the son of the blind man. And given that he was blind as well, he actually was the blind son of a blind man. Now do you see just how difficult a circumstance he was in? And it would take one of our medical people to tell me if blindness can be hereditary or not. But if it is, then whatever happened to daddy happened to Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus as well. 
And his dad, Timaeus, died without ever regaining his sight. Never got it back. But Bartimaeus is wanting things to end differently in his life. He's not content to spend the rest of his life in that situation. If I can say this, he might not have yet had sight, but he did have vision. He had vision of a better future and a better life. And this in itself is more extraordinary than we might realize because he's dreaming of a day when his things are going to be different. Daddy never got it, but I haven't given up hope. Amen. And this underscores the fact that you must want your dream more than you want anything else if you're going to get it. Amen. That's the first step in taking control of your life. You've got to get a bad case of the want-tos. Amen. You got to want it. And in Mark 11 and 24, Jesus said, therefore, I say unto you. And look at your neighbor and say, did you hear that? He said, he's talking to you. Amen. Therefore, I say unto you, what things soever you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them and you shall have them. Some translations say, whatever you ask. But, the, but I like the King James Version here because it says, whatever you desire. Modern translations, most of them just say, whatever you ask. The reason I don't care for the newer translations here is because when you look up the Greek word where it says desire, it does mean ask. But it doesn't mean to just ask. It means to ask with great passion, with great hunger. And it even literally means to beg. Jesus is saying, you're not going to get everything you want in life, but this God factor is going to be available if you want something so bad that you won't give up on it, that you're, you're begging for it. You can't live without it. If you, if you approach me in that manner, I'm going to see something happens in your life. Amen. Why is desire or passion so important? This story is incredible because of the fact that the longer most of us live with dysfunction or a problem or an abnormality in our lives, the more we tend to accept it. That's true. The longer you live with a rock in your shoe, the more you come to accept that rock in your shoe. longer you live with a situation, the more you come to accept it. Doctors will tell you that's one of the things that often leads to to physical conditions becoming difficult to treat. It's because we don't listen to our own bodies. And when some, we develop a little something and we expect it to go away and it doesn't. And three months go by and six months and a year. And after a while, we forget about it. We just kind of ignore it. And you can't accept dysfunction in this way. Amen. It can grow into something very, very bad for you. And in and, and the case of Timaeus, the Timaeus household had had blindness around for a long time. If this condition was indeed hereditary, it's possible that not only did Bar Timaeus, the son of Timaeus, uh, not only was he blind and his father blind, blind son of a blind man, it may have gone back for generations. We don't really know. But all I know is, is that he didn't accept what everybody else accepted. He had... Vision, even though he didn't have sight. 
He wasn't going to accept it. Most of us, like I said, we accept it, and we even get to where we own that problem after a while. Oh, yeah, we do. Oh, I can't go to the gym because of my arthritis. Like, you know, I got my name on it, and I, I own the title to this. And, you know, you can't have it. It's my arthritis. And, you know, my asthma, my sugar diabetes, you know, mine. It's mine. Amen. And, and then we hold on to it. You should never hold on to anything like that. You shouldn't. You shouldn't, you shouldn't claim it. Amen. Amen. And that's deadly to a dream when we take ownership of our problems in the sense that we accept them and we no longer are passionate about resolving them. It's deadly because hunger is necessary for vision to come into existence. And if you no longer have passion, and once you and that's what happens when you accept ownership of a problem in the sense of you just you 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 own this now and you're accustomed to it, and this now defines what is normal for you, and you're going to just live with it. Once you reach that place, it's hard to get passion, and you can't have vision without passion. You just can't have it. You see, passion works in two ways to help with create vision. The passion to become more than the guy everybody knows is the blind man going nowhere, sitting beside the road, is actually what caused vision to be birthed in Bartimaeus before he ever received sight. You see, that road is symbolic. That road speaks of life and direction. Everybody traversing that road is going somewhere. It's a road between Jericho, or rather between, uh, uh, between yes, between uh, Jericho and Jerusalem. And, uh, and everybody that goes that road, there's only one direction it goes. It climbs up the ascension of the mountains toward Jerusalem. And so people traversing that road are actually headed somewhere. They have a destination. They have a place they're going. They have a goal for their lives. Have you ever felt like you were sitting by the side of the road while everybody else had somewhere to go but you and everybody else was moving in a direction and life was passing you by? Then this message is for you. I want to tell you how to get unstuck. Amen. Bartimaeus is stuck. He's begging on the side of the road, and there's nothing more tragically sad than to have to sit beside the road and beg a few coins from those who have direction for their life. Live on their dream for a little while. Amen. Be sustained by their vision because you don't have one of your own. And the second way that passion works to help you pursue your vision when others is that it is that when others have given up passion will make you keep trying. It won't let you remain silent when opportunity approaches. When Jesus came by, you need to understand the way this works. You have five empirical senses: sight, touch, taste, smell, and hearing. If you lose any one of these five and you're reduced to four, what happens is the remaining four become more acutely aware and sensitive to their environment. You lose sight, your hearing improves. Amen. And uh, not only that, your sense of feel. Have you ever gotten on an elevator? I've done it many times. And I look at the button, and it's got these little dots beside it. You know what that is? That's Braille for people who are blind. 
And it doesn't look like a number. I mean, the, the number one doesn't look like a number one made of dots. Or the number two doesn't look like a number two made of dots. And I've, I've gotten on elevators and closed my eyes and put my fingers on those things to see if I could tell what was there. How many, I, I can't even tell how many dots in one of those things. But somebody that's blind is highly sensitive to that. And they navig navigate their world by being sensitive. They can even read Braille, running their fingertips across those things on a page. That, to me, is absolutely fascinating. And I applaud people who can do that. Amen. And not only is your sense of touch highly refined, your sense of hearing is refined if, if you lose your sight. People that are blind can hear things nobody else hears. That's right. Most of us don't even pay attention to the sounds around us. And, I, and we kind of, I mean, we do the same thing with most noise that we do with our wives when they're talking at home. We just kind of, yeah, honey, amen. And we're not even listening. We're watching that game. You know what I'm saying? Come on, get real with me. Let me tell you how to stay married 47 years. Every once in a while, I'll say, mm-hmm, uh, mm, amen, and uh, yeah, mm, I, I got you, amen. You want to stay married a long time? Learn to throw those words in there just every once in a while. Amen. And people who are blind can hear what we don't hear. And long before anybody else became aware of the crowd coming down the road, Bartimaeus and his compadre, his friend, would have heard it. And they would have heard the crowd approaching and then they could have sensed the excitement of the crowd, too, because they are highly uh, attuned to that fact. And, and the crowd is exuberant. And like I said, it's now the year of opposition. But uh, Jesus is more popular than ever among the average people. It's the opposition is coming from the religious folk. And, and so there are people there that probably had received miracles. I don't doubt, but what the woman that, that maybe was, uh, uh, you know, had the issue of blood and was healed, she could have been in that crowd. Crowd. And maybe the leper that he healed was in that crowd. And, and the lame man that they let down, sick of the palsy through the housetop in Capernaum, he might have been in that crowd. Can you imagine the celebration that was going on as people are applauding Jesus and, and Bartimaeus uh, hears that crowd and as it approaches, he stops somebody and says, who is this? What, what's going on? It's not any special holiday today. What's happening? And somebody says, oh, Jesus is passing through. And Bartimaeus has heard the stories. I mean, I mean, the CNN of the day has been talking about Bartimaeus, um, or rather about Jesus. And Bartimaeus has heard everything that's been saying, said about him. And he lifts up his voice and shouts, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. And almost immediately, and now notice he's going counter to the group mind. Everybody else is excited, but he's desperate. And the group begins to say, shh, shh, not that kind of party. Tone it down. I mean, this is a celebration. Don't need any of this sadness. Don't need any of that. But he cried so much the more. Because you see, when you have vision, you don't give up. And that's one of the great things passion will do. Amen. It not only bursts and facilitates the birth of vision in you, it keeps you pursuing vision when everybody else has decided enough is enough. Amen. 
I'm getting ready to show you just a, a clip produced by Tyler Perry. Is there anybody here who doesn't know who Tyler Perry is? If you don't, let me ask you, have you ever heard of Medea? Amen. And uh, Tyler Perry is a six-foot-five tall gentleman who has made, listen to this, he is now worth in excess of $450 million. Amen. He started producing plays and then movies, and, and he's panned. He's criticized by the critics constantly. I, just last night, I came in from Germany, and I had, uh, did a, a, an ordination for a, a spiritual son of mine in Germany on Friday night. Hopped a plane at uh, 6 o'clock on Saturday morning and started heading back home. I turned on the TV yesterday evening, and they had some guy I've never heard of. And he was in a panel, and they were discussing, and Tyler Perry's name came up. And he made some little trite remark about how he doesn't have much for Tyler Perry. And I sat there and said, go ahead and criticize, you broke thing, you. And, <laughs> and you know, and, and you who I've never heard about, I, I at least have heard of Tyler Perry. You know, I know who he is. And you're going to sit there and act like you know so much. And he's got $450 million. How much do you have? You who I have never heard of. And so I, I, Tyler Perry is somebody I could learn something from if I wanted to be successful. And Robert Jones sent me this video clip. Now, you need to know that just a few years ago in the late 1990s, Tyler Perry was broken sleeping in his car. Watch this. You know, the question is that a lot of people ask me all the time, how did you make it? How did you make it? Well, I tell you, there's <clears throat> only one answer for that. And I, I say this in press all the time, but people you will cut it out of articles or they don't want it printed or they don't want it said. But the truth be told, it was nothing but the grace of God. Nothing but the grace of God. You can plant seeds all day long. You can go around giving your business card to people. You can go around knocking on doors and auditioning. You can do all of that every day of your life. And nothing, there are time, for most people, nothing happens. When a seed is planted in the ground, all you can do is water it. You cannot control the sunshine. You cannot control the weather. And you cannot control whether the locusts will come and try and destroy it. All you can do is plant your seed in the ground, water it, and believe that is what allowed me to be in this position right now. I would not stop believing. I planted my seed. I worked really hard. I had one idea, and that was to do a play. All the other stuff came. My only idea, my only focus was to do my one play. And I knew if I could get that to work, everything else would come to pass. There are so many people who go in so many directions. They... This week they're doing this, and next week they're doing that, and next week they're doing this, and next week they're going to be in real estate, and the next week they're going to open a salon. And those, those kind of people are all over the place, and I usually try to get them to focus. Focus on one thing, one area. Put all of your energy into watering one area. If you spread the water across many, many seeds, you don't have as much water for one seed. So focus on one thing. Make it your priority and stick with it no matter what. No matter how many people told me no, no matter how many people lied to me, no matter how many times I put the show up and nobody came. Uh, I remember when I did my very first show, I worked my butt off and saved $12,000, tax returns, 
from H&R Block, money. I saved it, worked hard, saved it myself, rented the 14th Street Playhouse, put that show up, thought that uh, uh, 1,200 people would come over a weekend and 30 showed up, and I knew every one of them. But I didn't stop. That didn't deter me. That was in 1992. Uh, 93, same thing happened. I, I, 94, 95, 96, 97, up until 1998. Same devastation of nobody showing up in the audience. I was doing one show a year, working with different promoters, trying to get the show up, and nobody showed up. But I didn't stop. And my, 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 what I say to you now, looking at me now, here, I am a human being. There's no difference between my humanness and your humanness. The only thing is, if you're trying to get there, you cannot stop believing in any way. No matter what anybody says, no matter what anybody tells you, you have to know it beyond knowing it. And it is a, it is a feeling. When something is for you, this is how I knew it was for me. When something's for you, there's a feeling that is deep down inside of you that will not allow you to let it go. You have, it will, it will keep you going when you can't even keep yourself going. That's why the mantra here at the Tyler Perry Studios is a place where even dreams believe. Because there comes a time in your life where you've worked and you've stressed and you tried to get there and you couldn't on your own. But you have a dream. And that dream has to take on the belief for you because you can't do it by yourself. So what I would tell you is this. Don't stop. Narrow your focus to one idea, one, and make it work. That will give birth to all the others. All you can do is plant the seed and water it. God himself has to give the increase. Only God can make the sunshine. Only God can bring the rain. But if you've planted the seed, then you've done your part. I wish you so much success in 2012. Anything you want is possible. God knows I'm a living witness. Please feel me. Please hear this from my heart. Anything you want is possible. If I didn't believe it, I wouldn't take the time to send this message to you. Take care of yourself. Amen. You say, why is he criticized? Because his movies always have a gospel theme. And they pan him for that. Because he still promotes family values. One of the things that you will find is that if you have passion and vision, that you will recognize your opportunity. Explain to me this. Jesus had been through Jericho many times before. But on this occasion, how did Bartimaeus discern it was Jesus' last time to go there? You may not realize it, but when Jesus passed through, he was on his way. As I've already said, the road led to Jerusalem. That's where he was going. What you might not know is this was the week before he was to go to the cross. That was the last time Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. You see, the race is not to the swift, according to Ecclesiastes, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to men of understanding, nor favor to men of skill. But time and chance happen to them all. I need you to say that. That's the word. Time and chance happens to them. That means it happens to you. The problem is, is that if you don't have passion, you don't recognize it when it comes by. 
and we complain, oh, I wish I had the break somebody else had. You had the opportunity. It walked by you. You just didn't know it. You see, what passion does, it apprises you, sensitizes you, like Bartimaeus was sensitized to the sound of that approaching crowd, or a blind man develops sensitivity to the touch of the, the little dots on the, on the elevator that spell out in Braille what floor he's wanting to go to. When you have passion, you see what others cannot see. Amen. And it was Leonard Ravenhill who said the opportunity of a lifetime must be seized within the lifetime of the opportunity. Amen. Man doesn't know his time. You see, just in yourself, if you're sitting around thinking, I'm going to fish until my time comes, you'll never get it. You'll never know it. It's passion that makes you get up early and stay up late. And, and I'm talking about passion. Why? Not just passion for God, but I believe God wants his people to be the most successful people in all of the world. That's really the truth. Amen. You hook up with God, God elevates you. I love that text I read last week that he lifts the poor from the dust and the needy from the refuse heap and sets him among princes. People have got this whole thing about God pictured wrong. They think if you connect with God, it's going to cost you something. All it costs you is brokenness. All it costs you is heartache. All it costs you is you lay down the mess of your life and you pick up joy and you pick up happiness and you pick up a destiny and you pick up a future. You connect with a God factor that can make something out of your life. You know what it's going to cost you if you hook up with Jesus? It it cost you the mediocrity that you would have spent the rest of your life wallowing in. God wants to do something with your life. God wants to make something out of you. God has plans for you. Oh, somebody in the building say amen. But there's another lesson to be learned here, and that is vision is actually more valuable than sight because if you have vision... You can get sight, <laughs> but if you have sight and no vision, you're not going anywhere because there's a lot of folk in that crowd whose names were not mentioned in the Bible, but a blind man who didn't have sight but had vision, his name ended up in the book. One of the most incredible stories I've ever read in my life is that of a woman named Ann Sullivan. Anybody ever hear the name? Ann Sullivan. Ann Sullivan lived at the first part of the last century. She was blinded as a child by childhood disease, and she was sent to the school for the blind, Perkins School of the Blind, received her degree, graduated, and upon receiving her degree, she was recommended by the head of the school to help a family that had just been contacted, that had just contacted the head of that institution. They had a daughter who at the age of 18 months lost her sight and her hearing to what was probably meningitis, though it was never diagnosed. The young girl's name, Helen Keller. Anybody remember that name? Helen Keller, blind and deaf from the age of 18 months on. How much do you remember when, from when you were 18 months old? I doubt anybody here remembers anything at all because at that age, most of us, our memories are not yet developed to the point that we retain them long term. Our ability to perceive, we're so inwardly focused, we don't see much that's going on around us. 
And at the age of 18, whatever little baby words, or 18 months, whatever little baby words she had learned, that got lost. Whatever sounds she had heard, that got lost. She didn't have the ability to hear or to see. And by the age of 12, she was as wild as a feral animal. That's an untamed, wild animal that lives in the wild. And she was filled with rage. Can you imagine locked into a world with a brilliant mind? And yet you can't see, you can't hear. That means she couldn't speak. All she could make is sound. She wasn't even aware she was making. And she would go into rages and tear things up. The parents hired Ann Sullivan to come because she had, was blind herself and they thought she might could relate. And so she tried to teach little Helen, 12 years of age, about life and things around her. And what she would do is she would put something in Helen's hand and let her feel that. And then she would sign with her fingertips in the palm of Helen's hand the signs for the letters that spelled out the name of that thing. And so she gave her a doll and signed doll. Gave her a mug, signed mug, M-U-G. And Helen would become so frustrated she couldn't make the connection. And she would break the things that Anne was giving her, go into violent rages and just rage. But one day, Anne took her to an outside well and began to pump water because they didn't have running water then and at that home and, and she, where they lived. And she took Helen's hand and stuck it under the, the fountain of water spewing from that, 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 that pump. And then she took her hand and wrote the letters for water. And that was the moment, the aha, the eureka moment, the kairos moment, when it suddenly came together for Helen. And she realized that what Anne was doing was in each of these things was communicating to her what their name was. And it occurred to her that everything now has a name. She didn't know that before. She was living in a world without sight or sound, making wild noises, raging angry, but now she began to run to everything, stumbling over things, and when she would touch a flower, Anne would spell the name of that in her hand through a sign, a tree trunk. Everything she learned had a name, and as she began to build her vocabulary, she then began to take her fingertips, Helen's fingertips, and put them on the lips of Anne Sullivan. She would put them on her lips, and then she would speak, and she would feel the exhalation of breath and the different movement of the, of the lips that indicated different kinds of sound, though Helen had could not hear them. And she slowly taught Helen not only to speak, but to read and to write as well. Helen went on, are you hearing this? She went on to become the world's first graduate of a university that was both blind and unable to hear. She became the first graduate in the history of mankind to graduate from a university with a degree who was both blind and deaf, unable to hear. Helen became a world-renowned author, lecturer, and celebrated individual, inspirational figure known around the world. Many of us don't know her today. You say, why do you tell her story? Because this is what Helen said. Don't take it from me, take it from her. She said, the only thing worse than being blind is having sight but no vision. Many of us in this building today have sight, but no vision. Bartimaeus didn't have vision, he had sight. 
And so which is preferable? Vision for your life is seldom easy to define. It's even harder to achieve. And mark it down, you will fail. You will as you move toward your destiny, you're going to fail. You will strike out, make no doubt about it. What you have to do is have passion and vision strong enough that when others quit because they fail, you get up again and keep on going. Hear what I'm saying. I think of another bi a, a character in the Bible. The little lady with the issue of blood had suffered many things of many physicians, but she didn't give up. You can't give up either, amen. But I can assure you, you will fail. You're going to stumble. And what will vision do? Vision will grab you and say, get up from there, amen. You don't have vision and you fail, you become embarrassed. You become intimidated into mediocrity. You quit trying because you don't want to be embarrassed again but if you have vision you don't care who laughs at you you don't care who makes fun of you you don't care if you fail you get up and you keep trying when you're sleeping in your car you keep trying hear what I'm talking about and 450 million dollars later and 15 years later you don't care who laughed at you anymore because you find out vision can transform your life. Amen. Albert Einstein, arguably the most brilliant man that's ever lived in the history of this planet, was unable to speak until he was four. By several accounts, he didn't learn to read until he was nine. His teacher said he would never amount to much. As it turns out, there are only six or seven people alive today that are smart enough to understand the theories he postulated and they didn't come up with them. He's the one who came up with them, but they're smart enough to say, yeah, I understand that. So all of you guys that have had a little college and I've had a little myself, you know, and you hear people talk about, oh, oh, Brother Albert, you know, and the Einstein and act like you know everything. You, oh, you don't. There are only six or seven people in the world who are smart enough to understand but what I'm telling you is he was considered dumb. Don't let people tell you how unbrilliant you are. Don't let people tell you what you can't do. Walt Disney, founder and head of the Disney empire, creator of attractions like Disneyland and Disney World, was fired from a newspaper for lacking imagination and not having new, any new ideas. Imagine, this is the guy who gave us Mickey and Minnie, Donald Duck and Pluto. Walt Disney actually created an industry. Without him, there probably wouldn't be a Warner Brothers. Heaven forbid, because they gave us Bugs Bunny and my favorite, Daffy Duck, amen. And even Foghorn Leghorn. You see, you gotta have vision, baby. You gotta keep pushing forward. Walt Disney died almost 50 years ago in 1966, but the company Disney founded still takes in billions of dollars every year. Last year, 2013, took in $45 billion. Not bad for a man dead 50 years that they said lacked imagination. Don't let anybody tell you what you can't do. Oprah Winfrey was demoted from her job as a news anchor because they said she wasn't fit for television. She became the world's first woman billionaire and made her fortune in the very industry they said she wasn't suited for. Don't let anybody tell you no. 
Amen. Michael Jordan, after being cut from his high school basketball team, went home, locked himself in his room and cried. He became such a success that 10 years after his retirement from the NBA, he still earned last year $93 million. Not bad for somebody retired 10 years that was cut from his team. Look at somebody and say, how bad do you want it? Amen. Amen. Stephen Jobs, one of the most creative geniuses America ever birthed, told of going to Atari. And Hewlett Packer, I read his book just not long ago, and he, and he said that he tried to get them interested in the personal computer that he and his buddy Steve Wozniak had developed and of how he was turned down flat. He told Atari, and I'm quoting, hey, we got this amazing thing even built with some of your parts, and what do you think about funding us? They said no. He said, okay, we'll just give it to you. We'll just, we just want to do it. Pay our salary, we'll come to work for you. How'd you like to be the guy that told him no? Atari told him no. Then they went to Hewlett Packard, and Hewlett Packard said, hey, we don't need you. You haven't even gone through college yet. You know what they did? They didn't give up. They cried out so much the more. Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy. That's what you gotta do when everybody slams the door in your face. I'm preaching better than you're responding right now. Amen. Instead of giving up jobs and Wozniak founded Apple computers in their garage. As it grew, Steve had to learn how to deal with office politics. He was an obnoxious individual. When you read the book, you'll see that. But in a, and in a power move against him by the board, the very company he helped found actually fired him when he was 30 years of age. He became discouraged and depressed. And of course, Apple realized their mistake, brought him back, and the rest is history. How successful is he? Apple routinely has more cash in their reserves than the U.S. federal government has in theirs. God help us to fail the way he failed. I think of the Beatles. They had an hour-long audition by Decca Records. And after the agent listened to him, he told them that he didn't like their sound and further didn't believe they had a future in show business. They have gone on to sell over 2 billion albums. That's twice as much as anyone else has sold in all of history and are the most successful group of all time. How would you like to be the executive known as the one that turned down the Beatles? Amen. Someday you're going to make a mark with your name. Someday, oh, I'm preaching right now. Somebody's going to know who you are. I want to say that to our young people. Someday, the world is going to know who you are. And when they do, don't forget who brought you there. It was God who elevated you, lifted you out of the dust. Amen. Make your mark for God. Amen. And so I'm concluding. Stand with me, if you would, please. Stand with me. Take the time to hit the reset button. Because when you fail, don't give up. Just find your way back to true north again.